This is Brain Matters, the podcast where we explore the brain with the scientists who study it. Here's today's host, Matt Davis. Hey everybody, this is Matt Davis. And it's Anthony Lacanina. Hey man, how's it going? I'm doing good, how are you man? I'm alright, I mean I'm a little bummed that we haven't released an episode recently. You are? Yeah. Yeah, I, I mean too. it's, you know, it's definitely mostly my fault, but I'm going to blame the holidays as well. But we're getting back on it, guys. Yeah. Uh, we're, the episodes are going to be coming out. We just recorded. Fast and Furious. Fast and Furiously released. We got a, we got about five more in the bank, so you'd be, you guys should be expecting episodes to be coming out sooner. When you're going back home for the holidays, you're back home for Christmas, and you want a little relief from your family, just pop in a little Brain Matters. Or if you're, you know, running just on the treadmill and want to get some, uh, some of Matt and Anthony in your ears. Uh, We're there for you. <laughs> Night and day. So uh, you got something. You're, it looks like you're hiding something under the desk right now. I just want you to close your eyes for real quick. Do you trust me? I will for this moment. Yes, I'll trust you. Okay, so eyes, closing my eyes. All right. Just open them. Okay. Tell me what you see. All right. Eyes are open. And well, you're holding up a piece of paper right now. Yes. Is What's there... on that paper? Uh, there is a piece of ca- it's a cake, and there's a slice of cake that's be- that's removed from it, and there's strawberries on top, icing, and it looks like there's like two different layers. There's yes, layers. You hit the keyword. Oh, okay. No, it wasn't cake or no. No, it was not cake. It was not strawberry. Layers. We're gonna talk about layers today. Oh, okay. And you know why we're gonna talk about layers? Because we're talking about cortex. And it's made up of layers. Yes, it's layered. There are layers. And, and these layers are, there's, I'm assuming there's differences between these, or are they all the same? No, they're, they're, there's some differences. And the differences of the density of neurons there, and the differences between the connections, their inputs and outputs. And this is across the entire cortex? Yes, it seems to be the case that these sort of stereotyped arrangement of these neurons across the cortex, which is interesting because the cortex does a lot of things. It's involved in sensory perception, uh, vi- vision... Uh, audition, touch, but it's also involved in in motor planning and execution. The question is, how could it be so similar looking and yet do all these complicated functions? That's certainly one question that one could ask. And one could also ask, if you study one particular part of the cortex, say that is involved in processing visual stimuli, if you can find out the rules of connectivity and function within that piece of cortex, does that sort of apply to other parts of the cortex. Is there any other kind of interesting way in which the cortex is arranged to do different kinds of maybe like processing? Yeah, definitely. So it's been shown that sort of neighboring neurons oftentimes respond to similar stimuli. Okay, so there seems like there's a lot of interesting kinds of wiring going on. I bet there's a lot of questions involved in trying to figure out how is this little wiring set up. So uh, did you talk to someone today that sort of studies this kind of question? No, I just wanted to talk to you. I mean, cool. Well, we can just go. Yeah. Of course, I talked to somebody. I talked to Dr. David Fitzpatrick. He's the CEO and scientific director and research group leader at the Max Planck Florida Institute for Neuroscience. Well, that, I, I'm I'm excited to hear that the interview. I'm that I'm that, I'm sure that means that my auditory cortex is going to be uh, nice and stimulated. It certainly is. But before that happens, you need to perk up them cochlea because it's time for the interview with Dr. David Fitzpatrick. All right, let's do it.
let's start off. Let's start off with some softballs. Where did you grow up? Was there a moment in your life that you can identify that led you down the path of science? Wow, it's so long ago. I don't really remember. No, actually, uh, neither of my parents were scientists. I went to college thinking that I wanted to be a veterinarian. Mm. I worked in a veterinary hospital during the summers in high school and first year or so in college. And then I began to have my doubts because I felt like the veterinarians in the place I worked, and I hope they're not listening, um, <laughs> were a little bit bored with what they were doing. Every day was kind of the same, and I found myself wanting more. Mm-hmm. And at uh, college, I went to Penn State. Um, I took a course with an amazing professor. His name was uh, Paul Aplanop. And the first course I took was on animal behavior. And this person just had a way of pulling you in. He wasn't, it wasn't just facts, it was a narrative. And you always left the class wanting more. And so I would go and I would read more and whatnot. And I took another course with him that was neuroanatomy. And oh my God, I just thought that was so cool. I worked in his lab as an undergraduate. I did a project. It actually worked. Mm -hmm. It was on the visual system. And I was hooked. And, you know, I've talked to a a number of people in science, and they have a a sort of similar story that there was one professor that just, for some reason, you know, um, it was like the light bulb went off. And this is so exciting. I really want to do this. And that's what happened to me. From that experience, has that sort of informed how you approach mentoring and teaching in terms of inspiring other students down a similar path? I mean, I try to. Uh, I mean, I think what's important is to convey how exciting it is to do science, how exciting it is to be probing the unknown, right? I mean, we really don't understand some of the fundamentals of how the brain works. And to be in a position to break down those barriers and get a new insight, I can't imagine anything that's better than that. When you're lecturing to students, if you can give them a sense of what science really is, not what they're told it is in in grammar school many times and whatnot, you hear that, well, you have to have the hypothesis and then you have to come up with the experiment and then you have to have the controls. But give them a sense of how exciting it is to see something that that no one's ever seen before and recognize that nature is trying to tell you something that is so cool. That's what keeps me going, realizing that I may have another day where we'll see something that doesn't make any sense, but it's a starting point for doing something really exciting. Could you just talk about the sort of large scope problems that you're addressing in your lab? So um, I'm really interested in understanding how the cerebral cortex works and how it develops. And fundamental to understanding that is understanding how it takes inputs from the thalamus and transforms them into the response properties that cortical neurons have. This is not a new question, a new problem. You know, uh, people have been interested in understanding the fundamental mechanisms by which cortical circuits take their inputs and transform them for years. It's just that we haven't had the tools that allow you to get down to the level of 
single neurons, and now even single synapses, and understand how this input-output function actually operates. And we are taking these new tools. These are tools that allow us to use changes in calcium as a surrogate for changes in neural activity to really map out functional properties of these circuits and not only map them out in the mature cortex, but to understand how this functional network develops over time. What is cool about the cortex to study? Like, why choose that as your model brain region? Well, cortex is the part of the brain that changes most over the course of evolution. It becomes the, the largest structure in the human brain. Uh, it's responsible for all of the properties that we think of as human. I mean, the fact that you can utter words, sound comes out of my mouth, your ears can receive these acoustic vibrations, and your brainstem can transmit that information to cortex to the point where you can understand the words that I'm saying. Come on, this requires cortex. That's, and, that's and amazing to me. What's, what's interesting is that there are uh, different cortical areas that do different things. But if you actually look at cortex in a section, there's a lot of similarity. And so people have thought for years that there may be some fundamental principles that underlie the cortical circuit function. I happen to study vision. But I'd, I'd like to think that some of the input-output relationships that, that we're teasing apart there would be relevant for understanding audition, um, somatic sensation, and language, hearing, etc., even in the human brain. You mentioned in particular that you study vision. What are some of the basic properties of cortical neurons in the visual areas? So one of the, the features that distinguishes neurons in visual cortex from the previous points in the visual pathway, well, there's really two that I, I like to emphasize, but there are, there are actually many, but two. One is selectivity for the orientation of edges. So neurons in the retina and neurons in the LGN, lateral geniculonucleus, nucleus, that supplies the visual cortex, they have circularly symmetric receptive fields, and they will respond equivalently to any edge that crosses their receptive field. Neurons in the cortex respond selectively to a narrow range of orientations. And it turns out that cortical circuits literally build a representation of edge orientation. So every point in visual space mm -hmm. has neurons in visual cortex that are selective for the orientation of edges. So emergence of orientation would be one. Second is binocularity. So neurons in the lateral geniculate nucleus are monocular. Neurons in visual cortex are binocular. And fusing the inputs from the two eyes allows you to extract a lot of information, depth information, etc., that can't be extracted as easily from a monocular view of the world. What about the way particular neurons in cortex are arranged, sort of anatomically, what, what are the, the fun, interesting properties of those relationships? Well, you must be talking about my friend, the column. You got it. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. So um, in, um, I was going to say most mammals, in many mammals, cortex is arranged in terms of radial columns. So cortex is, is interesting. It's actually a laminar structure. So it has neurons that are arranged in layers. So basically stacked on top stacked of each other. Stacked on top of each yeah. other, like, you know, like a cake or something. Mm -hmm. But in addition to that organization, there's a columnar organization. So if you stick an electrode into the cortex vertically, radially across the layers, 
and you look at the functional properties of the neurons, they will uh, many times be very similar. So they'll have a, a preferred edge orientation. They'll have a similar weight of response to the left or the right eye. And this columnar organization that's prominent in visual cortex is also found in other cortical areas. In fact, it was first described many years ago by Vernon Mountcastle in the somatosensory cortex of, of primates. So I, I think it's a, a very important organizing principle of cortical circuits. Do we exactly understand how this columnar architecture comes about? No, we're working on it. And, you know, I think recently we've had some interesting insights into how that comes about. Uh, so what sort of functionally are, are the importance of these maps? So um, this is something that is highly debated. If you look in an animal like a mouse, a mouse visual cortex has cells that are selective for orientation, but it doesn't have columns. So cells sitting right next to another cell can have totally different orientation preference. So you might, and some have said, it's very clear that you don't need columns to have orientation. I agree. But it's increasingly likely that the whole organization in the mouse might be different than the organization in these other species. Uh, there's increasing evidence that the information supplied from the lateral geniculate nucleus already has orientation tuning in it. And so I'm not saying that there, uh, that there aren't circuit similarities between the mouse and these other species, carnivores and primates. But I think there is a fundamental difference in the degree to which the properties of those cortical neurons, orientation in particular, is emergent. I think that it's clearly heavily emergent in primates and in carnivores. I think in the mouse, it is a large fraction of it is actually being supplied by inputs from the lateral geniculate nucleus, which in turn are reflecting the inputs that are derived from retinal ganglion cells in the mouse. This is something that I think is important to emphasize. Mm -hmm. There are um, striking species differences in the organization of cortical circuits, and we should embrace these. These are really interesting. You know, the, the evolutionary pressures that resulted in a mouse cortex having this salt and pepper pattern, we don't know exactly what they were, but they're likely to be very different from the pressures that resulted in this beautiful columnar architecture that we see in primates and in carnivores. Mm -hmm. Do you think the change in the emergence of these properties correlates with going down the phylogenetic tree or something evolutionarily? I guess it all depends on what kind of pressures that you have as a species. Yeah, I mean, I um, I hesitate to say that, you know, we're going down the phylogenetic yeah. tree to talk about every extant species is a species that sure. has, you know, evolved through millions and millions and millions of years, right? So, yeah. And one of the things that we, that we don't really know is, you know, what did the common ancestor of the rodent and the primate actually look like in terms of its brain structure. I mean, we, we have no idea, right? Yeah. Um, so it's, it's very difficult to speculate uh, about these things. But I think, it's, I think it's important to at least entertain the notion that, you know, the mouse has to do a lot with a relatively small amount of neurons. Mm -hmm. And that may require a different circuit structure than what we see in carnivores and primates. One shouldn't think of either of these as being superior or inferior. One should think of them as being different. And the solution that the mouse has, has arrived at is a solution that is obviously very effective. The mouse does quite well in navigating in the world, et cetera, but it's a different one. 
And we don't understand why it's different in that way. But it, but I believe the more we're learning, the more we're recognizing that there, that there are differences. And again, I emphasize those differences are interesting. That's telling us something about the way in which evolution has shaped circuits. So you're saying we shouldn't do any species shaming. We should just embrace no. all. No, no. Yeah. And, you know, I, I happen to be, my work is really focused on species that have a well-developed visual system with columns and so on and so forth. And, yeah. and we can talk about whether the mouse sees as well as some of these other species. But uh, one of my uh, former postdocs, uh, Steve Van Hooser, did work in a squirrel, which is a rodent that sees quite well, sees as well as the, the tree shrew that I use and probably sees better than the ferret and other species that I use and has gone on to show that there is no columnar architecture in that species. So it's not as simple as having higher visual acuity, more intricate or precise circuitry. It's, it's not that simple. Great. In terms of what type of experiments do you want to conduct, how do you choose which species? Yeah, I mean, I, I do think it's important to choose a species that offers an advantage to you for addressing a particular question. Mm -hmm. And it turns out that in the tree shrew, the on and off pathways remain segregated through layer four up into layer two, three. And quite frankly, that's a tremendous advantage in imaging because we can see in an animal that has a columnar structure how this type of cell, this simple cell, how it's on and off subfields are arranged. And uh, we actually can't do that in a carnivore like the ferret because that happens in layer four. So it's out of our range of actually detecting it. So it was finding out what the organization was in the shrew and recognizing that we could do something in the shrew that would be very difficult to do in another species. Mouse doesn't have columns. Ferret, the on and offs are brought together in layer four. Ferrets are tremendously useful for studying development. It's born in a relatively immature state. So we can see and we can actually follow the changes in circuitry that occur, starting from uh, when layer two, three neurons are actually migrating into, into place. This would be something that you'd have to be looking uh, prenatally in another animal, like a, like a cat, for example, or, or a primate. And our work in the, the ferret, we can literally follow the same neurons and the same populations of neurons over time and see how they change with development. Great. On the development front, early visual system, as it's getting input, sensory input from the world, what are sort of the gross changes in the circuit that we know about and that maybe your research has contributed to knowing about? One of the things that people always want to understand is what elements of the development of circuit are dependent on experience and you know what elements can emerge without uh, the role of experience. One of the things that my lab has shown over the years is that there's one property um, that uh, appears to be dependent on visual experience, and that's selectivity for direction of motion. So I mentioned orientation selectivity before, and we talked about columns. It turns out that orientation is there at the time of eye opening. In fact, we're doing some really cool experiments to understand what happens prior to eye opening to set up orientation. But direction seems to depend on 
interaction with the environment, in particular interaction with moving visual stimuli. So we've been able to visualize individual neurons in a ferret has just opened its eyes and watch as those neurons change from being equally responsive to two opposite directions of motion to having a strong bias for one direction versus the other. And we can show that the stimulus that um, the animal experiences can influence that process. So again, that's just one step, right? That's showing that here's a property that does, that does seem to be quite sensitive to experience and there are other properties that aren't. Now you can say, why is that? What's mm -hmm. changing about the circuit and how is experience changing that? Honestly, we don't know. Uh, we believe it might be related to inhibition. Inhibition changes over this period of time after eye opening, but exactly how that contributes to direction selectivity at this moment, we don't know. So would it be possible just to have a brain that came all pre-wired and then it was just plopped into the world and uh, what, what would that look like? Is that even, can you even imagine <laughs> such a brain, you know? Like we're already set up and good to go. Um, yeah, no, that's that's interesting. Um, you know, it's hard for me to imagine that. I yeah. mean, just think of how much of your life is dependent on the experiences that you've had, right? From a, from an early age, mm -hmm. um, and how much of your life is dependent on things that you learned just today. Yeah, right. I mean, you you've heard things today. It's in your brain. Probably you'll remember it a week, month, etc. Our brain is constantly changing. Sure. Right. So I think that there are differences in between species in how much of the brain is hardwired and how much of it is changed by experience. Even in human brains, yeah. you know, there are parts of our cortex that you know are continuing to change. Hopefully, my, parts of my cortex are continuing to change until <laughs> sure. uh, late in life. Right. Yeah. And so. I can't, uh, I would say that a brain that can't change would truly not be a brain. Even in uh, early sensory areas, though, could those be just ready to go and hardwired? You know, we talk about these changes. What would that look like? Yeah, that's, uh, that's interesting how much of it could be hardwired. You know, we tend to think of vision as if visual cortex was a, a video screen and you know your eyes are video cameras pulling this information in. Not at all. I mean, you have to learn to adapt to this world. You have to learn what depth cues are, the polarity of luminance, the binocular disparity, how that signals the location of an object in space. So even as early as primary visual cortex, we have to expect those circuits will be changing. If for no other reason that there are feedback from higher cortical areas that can influence those circuits, but I don't think it's limited to that. I think those circuits are undergoing change that is allowing that cortex to optimally pull out the information from the visual scene. So is there a series of experiments that you are really proud of? You know, I, I, Here's something um, interesting. I've had many papers over the years, and they've been published in, you know, some of them have published in very high-impact journals and whatnot. And my most cited paper is actually a paper in the Journal of Neuroscience. Now, the Journal of Neuroscience is an excellent journal, mm -hmm. but it's not nature and science and so on and so forth. I am very proud of that paper. It happened at an early stage in my career, 
This was really the first set of graduate students that I had in my lab. And it was a, a graduate student, and this happens frequently to me, and, and again, I think this is the excitement of science, noticed something. Um, she noticed that if you made an injection into an orientation column in the cortex that would label the axons of those neurons, that sometimes the axons would be parallel to the V1, V2 border, mm -hmm. and sometimes they would be at different angles relative to the V1, V2 border. And no one had ever noticed anything like that. And she had an idea of what it was. She said, maybe this is correlated with the orientation preference. And, and by this extension, that's an extension across the map of visual space. Okay, and she suggested that maybe this is, you know, in a sense, a morphological specialization that's associated with orientation preference. I can tell you that others in the lab said, nah, <laughs> nah, come on. Yeah, 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 that's no, no. But it turned out that at just this time, um, we had access to technology that allowed us to map orientation functionally in cortex, mm -hmm. map visual space, and actually test it. And she was right. You know, I, I appreciate the fact that, you know, she took a little uh, ribbing, right? I mean, let's, let's face it, because that's, that's an amazing finding, right? Because yeah. no one had, had demonstrated this anatomical relationship. And what I really like is that she was steadfast. She said, no, I'm sure there's this difference. I just don't know if it's related to the orientation. And when we did the experiments and tested it and it came out that way, everyone was applauding. Okay? Yeah, That's, yeah. That, and I, I really like it again because it was early in my career and it showed me, you know, listen to your students. You know, if they come to you and they say, I think I've got something interesting here, you ought to listen. Absolutely. What about different techniques for recording neural activity? I know sometimes you do electrical recordings and sometimes you do optical recordings. What, what are some of the advantages of either technique? Yeah, well, you know, using electrodes or uh, using a patch pad, you can have beautiful record of the action potentials that are coming from neurons. Let's face it, and, and Tony Mofshin will be very happy to hear me say that. Uh, I mean, this action potentials really are the currency that neurons use to talk to each other. Right? So you have the temporal fidelity to really talk about the numbers of action potentials, the rate of firing, etc. That's great. Many times you don't know which neuron you're recording from. You might know the layer that the neuron is in. Uh, the properties, electrophysiological properties of the neuron might tell you something about that, but generally you can't be sure. And there are ways to get around that, but that's a limitation. Now, if you're patched onto the neuron and you fill it post hoc, you can say what the neuron is, but you know, that's a, a very small sample of one, right? So imaging is, is very cool because you can look at especially with the new technologies, two-photon and vivo imaging of calcium signals, you can look at large numbers of single neurons and look at their properties. There are ways where you can do post-hoc staining to get a sense for what that type of neuron was, etc. So it's, um, I think it's a, a, 
a, a wonderful way of talking about the properties that those neurons have. Can you deduce the individual action potentials that are coming from those neurons? Well, people are really trying. People are really trying to take calcium signals and use it to predict exactly what the spike record is. And they're doing a good job, don't get me wrong. But still, it's not the same as having that electrode sitting there and seeing those, those spikes. Is there a technology maybe in the next five to 10 years you see emerging that will have a big impact on your research or maybe neuroscience in general? So the big challenge for us is getting a handle on cell types. So, and actually this is true for uh, the mouse as well. I mean, I think we have many different mouse lines, uh, transgenic mouse lines that allow us to uh, identify different classes of neurons, but we've only sort of touched the surface of the tremendous diversity in neurons that exist there. And so I think the more we can get a handle on cellular identity and use that as a way of really dissecting this, the, the circuits, it's going to be huge. I believe that that is also going to be happening in non-murine species. And I'm already um, collaborating with a colleague who has come up with a viral probe that allows us to identify GABAergic neurons in non-murine species, look at their activity, and so on and so forth. And But I, I think that's where we're headed. We're headed to a time when we can talk about the activity of the circuit. We can even actually talk about the activity of the circuit at individual synapses. We can look at single neurons and look at the dendritic field of neurons and look at the functional properties of the inputs to that neuron and how it relates to the output. We can really get the input-output transform for individual neurons. But we need that in identified populations of neurons to really decipher how this circuit works. And maybe, maybe the answer is sort of related, but say, Say an eccentric billionaire just gave you $100 million, $500 million, some large chunk of money. What sort of avenue of research would you pursue? What questions would you pursue? Yeah, for me, I'm really interested in understanding the fundamentals of how the cortex works and how it develops. And so I would like to find a way to get more cell type specific probes that will really allow us not only to visualize the activity of molecularly defined populations of neurons, but to manipulate their activity, right? So that we can, we can ask, if we take out this subtype of neuron, how does that impact how the circuit functions? And ultimately, how does this impact behavior, right? So if you can, if you can make that link, if you can show as a certain population of neurons that you tweak in this way, that affects circuit function and affects behavior, that would be huge. That would be a, a huge um, stepping stone to understanding how the cortex works. Yeah, definitely. Is there some area of vision neuroscience or maybe neuroscience in general that you think is really cool and you would like to investigate more, but you just, you just won't have the time to ever get to it? So... You know, I am a sensory guy and I focus on uh, the early stages of cortical visual processing. What I find really exciting uh, is those who are going in a more cognitive direction, and in particular, those who are approaching phenomena like decision making. And, you know, I said earlier that cortical circuits, there's, there's, there are fundamentals of cortical circuit organization that apply to, you know, uh, all cortical areas, presumably. 
but being able to talk about decision-making, how a circuit accumulates evidence, how that evidence accumulation is used um, to, to reach a threshold that results in a decision, and how that evidence accumulation is modified by the outcome of that decision. Mm-hmm. I think this is really cool, yeah. and, and it clearly involves a distributed network, parietal, frontal, and so on and so forth. But tackling decision-making with the tools that we now have that, again, will allow us to visualize distinct populations of neurons and then manipulate their activity, I think that's really exciting because it, it gets down to you know, the essence of behavior. Sensory input, a decision, motor output. Yes, I'm envious of uh, those who, who work on decision because I just think it's, uh, there are a lot more unknowns, um, but it's also really exciting to be able to take these tools and use it to, to probe that question. Do you have any thoughts about being a part of an, an institute, um, say, rather than a traditional university setting while doing research? Well, I can't say enough good things about the Max Planck Society. Um, I feel honored to be a part of the Max Planck Society. It's, it has a, a different structure. You know, they really believe in small institutes. We have right now um, like 145 people in the institute. We'll probably grow to maybe 180, but it won't get, probably won't get bigger than that. It is run by the scientists. And by that, I mean the scientific directors um, who are brought into the society by existing scientific directors are responsible for the major decisions about the direction of research in the institute. And it it makes it very exciting. It has this element of having the scientist who is actually doing the science responsible for shaping the direction of of the institute. And I find that uh, very exciting. Well, <clears throat> since we're sort of on the subject, do you have any specific things to plug? Um, it's kind of fun to ask because we usually don't have people that have things to plug, but in your talk you did, so go ahead and plug those things right now. <laughs> well, uh, thank you. I appreciate that. Yeah. <laughs> uh, so, you know, we're a, a, a relatively new institute. You know, I've been in, in Florida for, for five years. Uh, we've been in the building, I think, for three and a half years. And the scientific community is still finding out about us. One of the things that uh, that we do is uh, every two years we do a symposium. And our symposium has had a terrific group of scientists show up. We had uh, two of these. Both of them had involved Nobel laureates. And uh, last year we had Eric uh, Betzik, who um, got the Nobel uh, Award for Chemistry, uh, gave a, came and gave a wonderful talk. But uh, he was one of many speakers who gave fantastic talks about neural circuits. So I would like the audience to stay tuned for the next symposium, um, which will be in 2017. Okay. Okay. We have a brand new imaging course. This is a, a course that is really focused on the techniques that are involved in, uh, in imaging. We have a stellar cast, including Eric Betzik, who will be there. Uh, but you know, the full range, we'll be talking about super resolution, we'll be talking about two photon in vivo, we'll be talking about all sorts of imaging. And um, it's an exciting course and people can go uh, online and, uh, and apply to be a, a student in that course. Finally, we have the first 
um, International Max Planck Research School that is transatlantic. Mm. So we are partnered with the Max Planck Institute in Bonn. That institute happens to go by the name CESAR. And the focus of this International Max Planck Research School is brain and behavior. These schools, uh, the, the, uh, they have a, a, a remarkable track record for producing fantastic scientists. And the beauty is that the graduate students in this program, you know, can work in these laboratories with cutting edge technology. Um, and there's a focus on teaching the technologies. So we have a whole course that will be devoted to getting people up to speed with different types of imaging, different types of recording, uh, working with behaving animals, etc. Um, and um, I would encourage anyone who is interested uh, in being a part of a program that uh, will really uh, give you an unprecedented ability to focus on circuits and behavior, uh, to consider um, uh, the IMPRESS program, and they can go to the website from Osplunk, Florida, um, and get access to the link uh, for that program. Can we tell them that Brain Matters sent them uh, along the way? I hope you do, and may I say that uh, I've really enjoyed this, and uh, I'm impressed with uh, with what you guys are doing. You you ask great questions, and it's really fun talking with you. Uh, I I know you're very busy with all your neuroscience related duties. Do you have any hobbies <laughs> outside of neuroscience? Do I have a life? Yeah, yeah, yeah. Oh, well, um, I really enjoy hiking. I really enjoy kayaking. Florida is an absolutely wonderful place uh, to go kayaking. Yeah. Um, I just had a visit, uh, and, and frankly, when um, my wife and I get to explore Florida, my wife is also a scientist, is frequently when we have visitors. <laughs> so we had a visit last week uh, from the vice president of the Max Planck Society, and we took uh, uh, Bill and his uh, his daughter Agnes out um, to the Loxahatchee River for a manatee experience. Oh, and it was absolutely fantastic. Um, the manatees there are relatively calm, so you bring your kayak up, they'll come up to the side of your kayak, stick their head out. Um, they like to be patted and so on and so forth. Just there's just something about. Um, being outside and being in, in a natural world and whatnot. That, and, and what's interesting, this place is, let's say, maybe 20 minutes from the Institute, but you feel like you're in Florida from 100 years ago. Yeah. Right? Nothing around, but, well, there's some uh, alligators too, but that's another, that's another story. <laughs> so uh, I like kayaking. I like hiking. Um, I like photography. Uh, as you might imagine, uh, since I'm uh, interested in the visual system. I really love, um, uh, you know, composition. Um, and I, uh, you know, uh, drives my wife crazy. I take so many pictures of sunrises and sunsets. Yeah. <laughs> it's, uh, but, um, you know, I think that's, that's, that's really about it in terms of, uh, in terms of hobbies. Uh, all right. Yeah. I think we're good. Yeah. Cool. That's awesome. Again, thank you. That yeah. Was, uh, that was fun. Yeah. Awesome. Thanks for listening. 
The music that you heard at the beginning of today's episode was by the artist DeathsDynamicShroud.wmv. And the music that you're hearing right now is by the artist Hong Kong Express. Both of these artists are on the Dream Catalog label, and you can check out their music at dreamcatalog.bandcamp.com. They have a lot of great stuff on there, so go check it out. Thanks again for listening. We really appreciate that you listen and support our show. We'll see you next time.